morning, I'd like for us to join together in the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll be reading a lengthy part of passage this morning, and really much of our service today has been reading great lengths of Scripture. And let me just say that I'm thankful to be part of a church and to be a part of a body that loves the, the corporate reading of the Word of God. And I invite you to read along with me as I read in chapter 1 and into chapter 2 just a little bit. So follow along as I read, although the text of our message will be contained in the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, in whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth and the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to that what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will, but now it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. 
at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory shall make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. May God bless the reading of His Word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God of our Savior Jesus Christ, You have brought to us a full salvation to the full person of You who lacks nothing of Your perfection, who lacks nothing of Your holiness. And You have brought Him to us that we might see You And He was like us, but He was not like us. For He is exalted above us. He is exalted even above heavenly beings, angels themselves. And how can we even behold such a one unless He had come humbly to us? Humble, yet majestic. Father, we pray that as we break open the Word this morning that we might see Jesus. On both ends, see His humility and see His majesty. That we might, with truthfulness of heart, sincerity of faith, say, Blessed is He who has come as King in the name of the Lord. We pray this in His name. Amen. It doesn't take long when watching TV that you come across commercials that compare things. Come to my mind, and might be easy for you to uh, recall as well, is commercials regarding, for example, uh, a laundry detergent. And you might see a cloth that has been stained by coffee or, or some, some sort of stain that seems to indelibly mark its time with that fabric in a stained way, and, and you see these two shirts, these two white undershirts, and they're before you, and one, both of them are stained, and one has uh, the leading brand, and it's been through ten cycles of wash, and still you see a stain on one side of your screen, and on the other side of your screen, you see this very same undershirt with the stain, and just through one wash, it has become clean. And the narrator is telling you, this brand that's tied probably or something like that, Clorox, is better than the leading brand. And here as we begin this book, the writer of Hebrews wants to tell us about someone who is better. Someone who is better. And they use this comparative word, better, here to indicate that they're, they're actually going to be telling us that there is a lot of things, a lot of people, and a lot of things that Jesus is better than. And the reason why they use the word better, in ESV it says that He is more superior than. In verse number 4, having as much superior to the angels, the word superior is the word better. And there will be 13 times in which the writer of Hebrews will use this word better all the way throughout like a cadence 
in the 13 chapters of the, of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And that is because it is interesting to our ears to something, hear something that is better, to compare it. It helps us to be able to understand apples to apples. And to understand that there is someone and something better. And Jesus is better than Moses and he is better than Joshua. He is better than Aaron. He is better than the temple and he is better than the priests and he is better than all these things. And the word better shows up, the word superior here translating ESVs in verse 4, shows up in the, in, in the book of Hebrews more times than any other, any other uh, time in Scripture. Thirteen times in Hebrews more than any other time in the rest of all of Scripture. No matter what you bring up, Jesus is better. And by the way, if you would like to continue to canonize, at least in your own personal practical way, Jesus is better than everything in your life. Perhaps it's a theme, at least in Hebrews, that we can take and walk out into our faith of the everyday, and that is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than your ambition. He's better than your career. He's better than money. He's better than power. He's better than applause. He's better than comfort. He's better than luxury. He's better than wealth. He's better than, than a spouse. He's better than a girlfriend. He's better than a boyfriend. He's better than all of these things. He's better than all these things. And that's what you walk away as you walk out by faith out of Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus being the author and finisher of your faith shows you that He is better than all these things. He's better. He's better. The opening lines of Hebrews brings that out. Notice in verse number 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days He is something better for us. The opening lines of Hebrews brings it out in the past, but these are not the past days. These last days are better. These last days are better. The resurrection was the end of the beginning. Okay? And that's what the writer of Hebrews is unfolding for us. In the very first line, his premise is to prove to you that the resurrection was the end of the beginning. That was just the beginning of what Jesus is up to. You didn't miss out. And as a matter of fact, what, what is unfolding in our lives even today is an unfolding of the great work and power of Jesus Christ. The last days were an inauguration. Uh, these last days, the, the, the first days were an inauguration of the work of the Messiah. Now Jesus is bringing together everything that He has brought, and we should say even everyone who He has bought by His blood to be fully delivered to, in time to come. That is, Jesus right now is working out everything that He had purchased. Everything that He had begun to plan out. And He has spoken to us. God has spoken to us by His Son. Notice, by the way, in verse number 2, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. This is a very unusual set of words grammatically in the Greek. It is better rendered, although it sounds very awkward, He has spoken to us by Son. Not through Son, but by being the Son. It, not even in the Son. Not like the Son was a prophet who God spoke through. Not like the Son was an angel who carried a message. But by Son, God has revealed Himself to us and spoken to us. Jesus is the revelation. He doesn't just carry the revelation. It's not just in. He has spoken to us in Son, by Son. It's certainly His Son, 
It was by words previously. It was by words through the prophets. By words through our fathers. But now by the Son. Now by the incarnate. The living Word. He isn't just words. And the words were great. And the words were wonderful. And we needed God to speak to us. But now He has spoken to us in Jesus. We don't look like Moses did in the cleft of the rock at the tales of the robes of of God as He moves by. Now we see God through Jesus Christ. Now we see the full image of God, the right interpretation of God. God has established His Son to be the mediatorial King of creation. Jesus maintains all things. He's completed His work. He has become superior like in His name, in His being. He had the name and He had the work before time began and before creation was instituted. But as He came into this world, He became inferior. That is, He didn't remove anything from Himself to become inferior, but He He added unto Himself humanity. Because of what He did as He was man, He became superior again. This, by the way, it seems to be the way in which Scripture reveals to us a proper Christology, a proper view of Christ. That is, Christ in times past uh, held on to His glory, uh, enjoyed the privileges and the superior and supremacy of His Godness. And He came into this world and He humbled Himself like in Philippians 2. He humbled Himself and so He descended and was humiliated. And by the way, you and I have very little understanding, very little ability to grasp the humility of the God who once sat on a throne to be lying in the grave. And He came to the bottom. He who is at the top came to the bottom and then the ark goes back up into His exalted status at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is how Christology works in the Scriptures. Sometimes we find the second part of the Christology, that is the humiliation and exaltation, not necessarily the pre-existence, but this is is what we see here. And so too, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 takes us on the journey of his pre-existent exaltation, his humiliation to be inferior, that is underneath, to succumb to humanity and the woes and the wounds of humanity, and then to be exalted. This is a typical pattern. Jesus isn't just the counterpart to the prophets. He isn't just the counterpart to the angels. He isn't just another revelation. It is Jesus. And instead of concluding, and instead of concluding, um, that the writer is comparing Jesus to angels, he's actually showing us a little bit of a typology here. Why does the writer of Hebrews compare Jesus to angels? It's likely, by the way, as I've looked in historians' notes and, and commentators' notes, that, that the people uh, that who he's writing to were not having a problem with their understanding of angels. They, didn't, they probably didn't believe that Jesus was another angel. So why does he bring about angels? Well, we know from our study in Matthew, by the way, that angels appear in the first two chapters in Matthew. And Jews actually had quite a, quite a theology and quite an appreciation for angels. There have been many angels that have been interacting with the, the Jewish people throughout all of time. 
Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews is going to expound upon, he is above angels and he might even, we might even say he is the better angel. He is the better messenger. That is, by the way, what the word angel means. It means messenger or servant messenger. He is the better messenger because, why? He doesn't merely carry the message because angels carry the message, right? Gabriel carried the message to Mary. Gabriel carried the message to Joseph and others. He carried, they carried the message. So what makes Jesus the better angel? Well, he doesn't carry the message. He is the message. He is the good news. He is the gospel. And so he is the revelation. He is the actual revelation of the Father. And after Jesus' humiliation, he could have called upon the angels, but he didn't. He didn't call upon the angels. But instead, he was exalted. You see, he's better than the angels. And as we would read through, and we won't have time this morning to take apart all of these Old Testament references as you see them kind of broken out in your passage, but, but essentially um, angels, as the writer of Hebrews will, will describe, even the holiest of angels, if we could use that comparison, even the holy angels themselves cover their faces when they look upon God. They cover their faces. But Jesus isn't an angel. In our world, we have a world that is sometimes claiming to be deeply spiritual. Likely, no matter who you're around, they have some sort of conversation, some sort of philosophy about spirituality, about religion. And often claims of revelations, people would say, I've had a dream, I've had a vision, or, or I have this feeling, it must be true, it must be what, what I'm being led to do, whether they acknowledge God or whatever, um, something we could say would be comparable to how Jews viewed angels delivering visions. Even Muslims, by the way, will hear the message from an angel. But Jesus is simply better than the angels. And the writer of Hebrews is going to start with what we could think of as some of the most supreme beings in his, in his book here. Because the comparison, the comparative, is more interesting. He's much superior. He's better, verse 4, than the angels. And because of this comparative, it makes us listen better. The reason why we keep watching that commercial on TV is because we're, we're, we're judging this and figuring out, is this really going to be true? And so the writer of Hebrews wants to use this comparative word, better, 13 times, so that you can thoughtfully and with faith judge for yourself, is Jesus better? And by the way, this is our, this is our message, this is our, our evangelism as believers we're sharing with the world that Jesus is better. He is better. He's better than your religion. And he's, he's better than, than anything. He just is better. And so this comparative makes it more interesting and it helps us to listen better. He is best. He is best, Certainly. But he's better than everything that you would want to hold on to. He alone is better. What could be better or who could be better than the angels should come to our mind? Who could be better than them? Who could be better than Moses? Who could be better than Joshua? What could be better than the law? What could be better than the high priest? What could be better than the temple? What could be better than the sacrifices that were accepted by God himself? What could be better than all these things? Or who? Hebrews 
tells us Jesus is. Jesus is better. He's the better king. And so, in, verse, in the first several verses here, we're going to be looking at a sevenfold description of the incomparable superiority of Jesus, who is the Son of God. And so, number one, the Son was appointed by God as the heir of all things. Notice in verse number, verse number two, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Turn with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is um, the passage that uh, no doubt is on the, the, the writer of Hebrews' mind. Psalm 2 describes, is, 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 is thought of as a messianic psalm. I want to remind you that so often the book of Psalms records um, sort of a, a, almost like a dual fulfillment. At times you might wonder, is the psalmist speaking of the glory of perhaps Solomon in all of his robes or David in his might and in his strength standing on the portico of the palace and the people beholding him. By the way, the sight of a king in Israel at the, t- the height of, of its rule, especially under David and Solomon, would be a sight that you and I would enjoy to see. Just, just a feast for the eyes. Something comparable might be when you and I tune into to the television, we might see something happening over in in, in the palace, the Buckingham Palace in, in, in London, England, where we see just the, the extravagance and the display of majesty. And even, I, I feel, I don't know what you do, but at times watching some of these royal events taking place in England, almost like a little bit of like pride and some robust feeling swells up in me as if they were my queen. But there's this, 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 awe, this reverence. And I think some of that is lost in our, in our Republican democracy here in America. We, we don't know what this is to behold monarchy, to behold sovereign authority and majesty. And so thank God, by the way, that God has been kind to give you and I, who are just blue-collar Americans, this, this, this Word of God that can help elevate our thinking, help us to, to look at our God with, with eyes that would would see His majesty. And Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. And why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And by the way, we had referenced this passage as we had looked back in Matthew chapter 23 when the Pharisees and the scribes were just like gnawing at Christ. Just, just sort of chiding Him with their mocking questions and their accusations and their incomplete responses. And they were, they were raging against God's anointed. And so verse number three, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Wait a minute. Notice the theology that's taking place here. There is one... Who, will, who sits in heaven and laughs and holds them in derision and he speaks to them and he says to them, I have set my king. So God sets his king. We want to see here the two persons of the Godhead here. There is God who is Lord and he is setting a king. He is setting the anointed one. Notice in verse number two, we see this uh, as a clue again, that the Lord, they had set their counsel against the Lord and 
against his, the Lord's, anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one who has been set, up, set uh, high and set apart by God himself. He sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. Verse number 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And notice back here, in, and just keep your finger there in Psalm uh, 2, but notice back here in Hebrews 1, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. That is, Jesus is in possession of the inheritance. He is in possession of the inheritance, but the inheritance is still being gathered, we could say, or being realized in the coming of His kingdom. And so that is what Jesus is doing. He has already inherited all things. And right now he is gathering that inheritance to be fully realized in time to come. You are evidence. You are evidence of this. As we were reading in Hebrews chapter 2, he is bringing many sons to glory. He is gathering together an inheritance. He is, he is, he is uh, making an accounting of his inheritance. As he continues to share mercy, and by the way, if you're here today, or if you're listening to this message and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can become part of the inheritance of Christ. You are the one who God is seeking after to, 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 to become the full realization. He's bringing many sons to glory. But continuing on, the right of Hebrews says, not only has he appointed him to be heir of all things, but number two, the Son was the one through whom God made the ages. So we see through whom also he created the world. This does mean a time period. It is the word cosmos in our Bibles, the word that we typically find for our world. It also means that he is creative in his acts. And by the way, this would make him superior to prophets, wouldn't it? Because this is someone who's creating the world. The prophets weren't able to create anything. He's greater than the prophets. He's able to reveal things, even three-dimensionally, not like the prophets. And by the way, angels never created anything. And angels never created anything. They can't create anything. Only Christ has that power. So it means our world, both our physical entity and the time period of our world, which, by the way, cosmos has both connotations. It means, yes, the world that you see, the, the planet Earth, the universe even. But also the age, the time in which we're living. Jesus has created this age. Yes, even this COVID age that we live in, or post-COVID prayer. This time period is, is all lorded over by our sovereign King Jesus. It's been handed over to Him. And He has creative control over the world in both its physical dimensions and its periodic dimensions. Space and time are the creation of Jesus Christ. Space and time are the creation of Jesus Christ. And not just time like the ticking of a watch time, but the ages, the periods of time, what's going on. He is directly involved in both. Jesus is directly involved in the time period in which we are living. Number three. Notice in verse number three that he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance 
of the glory of God. He is the possessor of deity as the radiance of the glory. This, by the way, is an intrinsic connection. This is the only time this word for radiance, by the way, is used ever, uh, from what we can tell, ever in Scripture. This right here, the only time this word radiance is used. is the only time. And it would be helpful if we use this word more often, but effulgence. Effulgence means this. It means to shine forth, to have brilliance, to be dazzling. Even the word luster, splendor, or here's a word, blaze. Blaze. All of these might be helpful in our understanding of radiance, but, but as, we, as we look at radiance, we think, well, that's just like the beams of light that emanate from the source. Like, for example, the beams of light from the sun, sun beams. And we say, well, there's the sun beams, and that's different than the sun. No, it's not. It actually is it's not. The sunbeams uh, emanate from the sun it's directly. It, you, we don't have one without the other. And so just as the rays of the sun shining over the earth are not without the sun itself, so Christ is the effulgence of divine glory. He is the blazing of God. He is glory. He is glory. And he shines that glory. Number four, the sun is the exact representation of God's essence. Thus, he is the perfect revealer. He is the, act repre- the exact representation of God's essence. Thus, he is the perfect revealer. What God wanted to know about us was made full and complete. This wasn't one of those telephone games like you played when you were little. And you told a secret to someone, and they told a secret to someone, and they told a secret to someone, and finally at the end you have a whole different story than what had started out. Jesus is exactly what God wanted you to know about him. Without any flaw. And without anything not included that God wanted you to know about him. He has perfectly revealed who God is, who the Father is. Jesus even says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And he alludes to the fact that he speaks nothing except that which the Father has given to him. He is the messenger of the Father. Jesus is the exact representation of God's essence. When God decided that he would reveal himself perfectly to humanity, he incarnated himself as Jesus, the Son of God, And showed who he was. It is impossible to know who God is without knowing Jesus. Character is the word that is used here. Character. It is not the English word character, but it is the word character. He is the exact imprint of nature. It is the word used here, and it is the idea of an impression being made by an engraving tool. This is the only time that this word is used in the Bible. That he is the exact imprint. By the way, if I feel like the writer of Hebrews is... We, he's not inventing words because these are known Greek words. But he is using words singularly for Jesus Christ. He is reserving some of the vocabulary 
to describe the superiority of Jesus Christ, only one person in all of Scripture can be described by this one word. It is reserved for Jesus. And so is the impression made by an engraving tool. This is the only time it's used in the Bible. Those who want to see God can see him by seeing Jesus. He is the exact imprint from the die that had been cast by God. In Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul would say in Colossians 1.15, he is the icon, he is the image of the invisible God. He has revealed God perfectly to us. Well, because he's God. And by the way, if, if you feel just your heart has grown a little cool towards God lately, or if your heart tends to kind of sway back and forth, all it takes is taking God, the transcendent idea of God, and coming to Him through Jesus. And coming to Him through that person of Jesus Christ. Go back into this Word of God and just sit at the feet of Jesus. And let your theology, your Christology, okay, shape your theology. Let your Christology warm your heart back unto your love for God. Number five, the Son is the carrier. He is the carrier. Number three, he he is the exact imprint of the nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the carrier. He is more than merely sustaining and maintaining and sometimes when we look at the word upholds, we think, well, he's, he's got the whole world in his hands idea. He's keeping things going. He's like the top, just spinning it just some more so it doesn't get off rhythm. And he's just merely sustaining and maintaining. But, but the idea really here that's being encapsulated here is Jesus is upholding the world and the ages of this world, but he's doing so, he's moving toward a goal. Christ is carrying this world and the universe forward to the consummation that God had intended. Think about this like in, in, in Isaiah chapter 9. and Isaiah says, For unto us the Son is given, and, and the government will be upon His shoulders. What's He doing with that? He's moving with the government towards God's appointed end. And this this makes us a little bit tremble because we know what's coming down the pike as governments will continue to assault God and assault His Lordship. And eventually, government will succumb, earthly government will succumb to an evil one's government in time to come. And so we, with fear and and reverence, look at that and we say, ooh, what is the consummation of it? But Jesus is carrying the government upon His shoulders. He's moving towards this goal. And interestingly, when the Jews made a Hebrew version of the New Testament, they called it the Septuagint. When they made a Hebrew version of the Septuagint, they chose a word for this a word uphold here when they translated it into Hebrew, not into Greek. And we're not going through this whole lesson for no reason. Let me share it. So in Numbers 11.14, when Moses sat down exhausted from leading the people and felt that he was just overwhelmed by the people coming to him, asking for judgments and decisions to be made, millions of people, and he felt so overwhelmed. And he looked unto God and he complained, and he said, how can I govern this people? He was 
He was admitting that he could not shoulder the burden of the people of God alone in Numbers 11.14. The same word that the, the translators of the Septuagint, if you're following me, of the New Testament in, in Numbers 11.14 use the same word. So too our Jesus is the greater Moses. He is shouldering the burden of the people of this world. He is shouldering the governments, even the evil ones, carrying them to a fitted end, some unto judgment and some unto blessing. Jesus is carrying this world towards an exact conclusion by governing and guiding all things to work toward that desired end. In Greek mythology, the story of Atlas comes to mind. The weight of the heavens are placed upon his shoulders by Zeus as a punishment. Although artistically rendered as a globe of the earth, it's like a curse upon Atlas' shoulders. Even Hercules finds himself uh, entangled in this myth. But the, the curse was one of eternal proportions and Atlas was weighed down with this burden of the universe on his shoulders forever. How remarkably different is it that Jesus is not like that? In Hebrews 1.3 here, Jesus is described as the one who is upholding all things by the word of his power. And Jesus, by the way, is not growing weary. And it is not a curse. He is stronger than all the Greek gods combined, of course, and that's our Lord. He is just one of the, this is just one of the seven exaltations of Christ in Hebrews 1. There's no mention here that, that the world is a, is a wearisome burden. No, Jesus is joyfully carrying about this world and the times of this world towards a, an end when everything will burst forth in exaltation and glory of Him. Number six, the Son is the producer of purification from sins. After making purification for sins. Now in our ESV, it's, it's rightly translated, but there are some other manuscripts that include some words here that can be helpful. If you're sitting with a King James Version in your lap, you'll notice that the King James says, and making, he made of himself purification for sins. It's a note of clarity. That is, Jesus didn't just touch everything with rubber gloves and make them clean. He didn't just stay six feet away or wear a mask to make sure everything was going to be clean. No, He Himself became the purification for our sins. It took every bit of Him to clean every bit of us. And I like that. And really that's, that's what's there. And he made purification for sins. He made of himself purification from sins. Why? Because listen, nothing else could. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Your good works cannot wash away your sins. Your good intentions cannot wash away your sins. Nothing but he himself qualified for the purification of our sins. 
God Himself was needed to clean you and I of our sins. And that's what the writer of Hebrews will explain thoroughly and beautifully through the rest of this book. It is all about Jesus. It is all about Him. Nothing else. He's better than everyone. He's better than everything else. What gets the stain out? He's better. And lastly, number seven. The seventh exaltation, the seventh incomparable superiority of Jesus Christ. It almost seems fitting. It almost seems like it draws to a conclusion here. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The sun is seated at God's right hand. When? When he had completed the purification of sins. So we have the story of Christ. He who at once wore the robes of majesty, but took his robes off and became obedient like a servant of man, even to the point of death, and made himself, made of himself the purification of sins, and now is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. How did he attain that? How did he get back there? How did he become superior to the angels? How is he better than Moses? How is he better than the temple? How is he better than the priest? How is he the one, an eternal sacrifice, the once for all? Because he finished the work. He sat down. Because his atoning work was done. Nothing was left to do to clean you and I of our sins. Nothing. A believer with a tender conscience, a believer who is listening to this, who is plagued by, am I, am I really saved? Preach this to your conscience. He's sitting. His work to clean you is done. It's all done. Once for all, the writer of Hebrews will say. He sat down because it was done. And he's not going to stand again to purify you of your sins. The next time he stands will be in a time of judgment of the wicked. There will be no mercy in that standing. But he sits because his salvation for you is complete. He's at rest. The majesty on high gives us the name or a title of God. He sits at the right hand of God, but it tells us of the greatness of God. This is no earthly pomp and circumstance. It doesn't get more prestigious than this. It doesn't get more majestic than this. You see, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who laid in the grave, now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's nobody higher and there's nobody next to him apart from God. No angel ascends his throne. No man does either. He sits on the throne. And the right hand indicates honor 
and authority. It's a place of special favor. The sovereign ruler's prime minister. He is, Jesus is, God's right-hand man. And we say that with no sacrilege. Because angels are in heaven too, the author wants us to know something. That he sits far above the angels. We know that he was pre-existent. By means of his incarnation, Jesus became for a time lower. That is subject to earth's miseries and limitations. The angels don't do that. Jesus was beaten and scourged and was hungry and was naked and was, was crucified. No angels endured that. And so for a time, he was lower than the angels. That does not mean his position. It means his experience. However, his eventual exaltation restored him to the highest place possible. His name is better, meaning by his title, by means of his resurrection work, he was declared by God to have all the prerogatives of kingship. Angels were often called the sons of God, and the writer of Hebrews wants us to know this is no normal son son of God, small s. This son is very different. He's not in such a group. You see, the sons of God was always plural. Sons of God throughout all of the Old Testament. Whenever you see sons of God, you'll see it plural. But this is singular. This is the Son of God. No angel was ever directly addressed as a Son of God in the Scriptures and definitely not like in Psalm 2-7 that we had read earlier. And so he has inherited a name more excellent than they. And this is the Father's public declaration of his sonship, his authentication of it. This is what the Father did when the Son went to the grave in utter humiliation. Jesus became the worst of the worst. Jesus became worse than you when he died on the cross. And the Son of God was buried like a criminal. He was betrayed by His people. He was crucified in front of the whole world. And listen, Jesus was crucified in front of the angels who must have been baffled as they stood in awe around the nativity scene there in Bethlehem. So too, they must have stood in heaven, wondering what God was up to as He was unfolding His redemption plan. They were not omniscient. They were learning too. And they see Jesus in the grave, the one whom they had bowed to on the throne. Jesus was crucified in front of the whole world. He was, in, he was crucified in front of the angels that worshipped Him. And by the way, He was crucified in front of demons and the devil himself. How humiliating for the Son of God to have a crown of thorns upon His head and nothing upon His body except nails in His wrists and nails in His feet and eventually a spear in His side. And to know the backside of the Father who forsook Him. How humiliating for the Son of God in front of the angels and in front of the demons and in front of all of His creation to lay in a grave. And the writer of Hebrews wants you to know that his inferiority would be the precedent for his 
superiority. That he who became low became the lowest. That he would be appointed to become the highest. And so the Lord is not ashamed to give him a name that is above every name. Because of what he did there, he became the worst name. He bore your name and he bore my name. And so it's not about a proper name that God gives him. We know his name, Jesus. But it's about the title, Son of God. And God says, this is, the, this is my Son. This is the Son of God. Worship him, all you creatures. Every human creature, every holy angelic being, and demon angel alike, he is superior to angels. The Father was showing us the uniqueness of His Son. He wasn't just like you and I, and He wasn't like an angel. He was restoring His Son to all the prerogatives that He had enjoyed before the Incarnation, along with the, redemptive, the development of the redemptive plan. So where does that leave us? There are quite a few applications, but let me just confess to you that part of my preaching this morning is to just move you to worship. That the Word of God would move us to worship Jesus Christ, to exalt Him, lest He has become diminished in any way in your mind and in my mind. Lest He has become any less of a king in your life and in my life. Part of the impetus of preaching this passage this morning is to set us all in a right way before the exalted Son. But can I share with you one or two small applications as well as we wrap this up this morning. The book of Hebrews has an attitude of expectation to it. Christ is appointed the heir of all things and we too will and share. And by the way, we are the inheritance of Jesus Christ. He has brought many sons to glory. Jesus isn't redeeming gold as much as he is redeeming people. You are his inheritance. It's almost like this. God couldn't help himself. He wanted more sons. He loved his sons so much. He wanted more sons. That in Jesus Christ, he would have more sons. And so we look for that day when we will reign with Christ. And like the patriarchs in Hebrews 11, we are looking for that future city of God. Like these great men and women of faith, we today should be strangers and pilgrims on this earth. We are down. We want to be up here. Remember, we want exaltation now. But God says, it's not going to be like that for my children of faith. Like Jesus, so you too will be at the bottom. You're not in the top of the story yet. Walk by faith in the bottom of the story. This is one reason why God is shaking everything around us. He's unsettling you. He's breaking away idols. He's breaking away wrong beliefs. He's breaking away securities and insecurities. And he's loosening your grip and my grip from everything we think is normal in this world. And so He should, because we were never meant to hold on to this world like this is all there is. This isn't the kingdom. 
And these things are not our Savior. And so the Lord is shaking your life. Bringing about health complications. Bringing about losses. Bringing about challenges. Taking away things from you and I. Because we hold on to them so tightly. He's shaking us loose from all of these things. He wants us to turn loose from the things of this world and stop depending upon them. Our securities do not lie in this world, but in the person and work of Jesus, the Son of God. Christ is better for us because He is the revelation. He is the revelation. He is the revelator. And the the writer John, John will write in his Gospel, He is the Logos. He is the Word. He was the Word and He always will be the Word. He is the revelator. No other voice ought to fill our lives with the prominence that the voice of Christ ought to have. Christ is better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. And in this day, hear His voice. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What is our tendency? To stop listening to the voice of God. That's our tendency. But today, knowing this is the last days, as Jesus is working out His redemptive work, draw closer to hearing His voice. Because He's better than the angel that would come to you and tell you the will of God. Because He's better than the prophets and the fathers. Hear His voice. Obey it. Submit to His sovereign rule over your life. As Jesus governs and guides your life, He is doing so to an expected end. He knows where He's going with you. And He's already told you where He's going. He has purposed to make you like Himself, radiant in glory, an inheritor of the eternal. Let's pray together.